This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, MidwayUSA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me for five dollars a month you can see the actual podcast on patreon.com just search the thin green line podcast on patreon.com and join us we love our children we protect them we guide them we prepare them for life in the world with all that we do from deep in our hearts we cannot control all things Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. 
Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 54, The Case of Kate Matrasova. This podcast is actually an interview with the author, Ty Gagne, who wrote the book about Kate Matrasova. The title of the book is Where You Will Find Me. This podcast, I will tell you, has been a soul searcher. As the lieutenant in charge of this search and rescue mission, there is a lot of ins and outs, ups and downs. The stress comes back to me years later. The search and rescue is part of the New Hampshire conservation officer's job and a large part of it in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. You're going to hear very clear descriptions uh, that Ty talks about and I talk about regarding this case. We're going to continue on with a little mini-series here. The next podcast is going to be interviews with some of the game wardens that were there and how they handled the situation, what they did right, what they did wrong. Really eye-opening for me to reflect back on such a case. John Norris isn't joining us this week. He is on the road. He's with Monster Energy and Can-Am in the desert somewhere and on some undisclosed location doing a little racing. So hopefully he'll, when he joins us back, he'll share what he's been up to lately. But this uh, this is going to be a little series, like I said, talking about this case. It's, it's so different being a part of uh, this interview myself, as well as being the host, uh, to, to reflect back, to have the insight, to have this book written, to be in the book, to be part of the mission. And I just, it was such a, it was such a case that affected so many people in so many ways. And I just wanted to share that. And by framing it with the interview from Ty Gagne about the book, and then bring the officers into it so you can hear what they experience. Certainly, our search and rescue teams are outstanding, and we'll talk about the Mountain Rescue Service, AVSAR, the skill sets they have, and the people that they bring to bear on search and rescue in the highest quality. I always think of um, those teams that we need to call that are trained above and beyond what we are as the Delta Force, the Navy SEALs of search and rescue. And that's who we needed in this case, in this Kate Matrasova case. So, and we'll talk about them, and hopefully we'll get to, to share a little about what went on there. So this is the first part to give you an overview with Ty Gagne's book, uh, Where You'll Find Me. Then we'll go into some officer interviews as we continue on this little series of uh, the case of Kate Matrasova. And if you are listening to Warden's Watch, please, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, if you guys could just put a review out there. Having a five-star review helps other listeners as they look for outdoor podcasts, as they look, we have a five-star rating, and that there is a bunch of people that give it a five-star rating, just not, you know, a few. So that helps us. If you could do that, take some time out of your day. If you enjoy the Warden's Watch podcast, which I hope you do, if you're listening, I hope you do, 
Uh, we certainly have a diverse uh, group that we've interviewed from across the country, and we're going to continue with that. I got some some exciting stuff coming up. We're going to go across the pond in one of the most recent interviews that I did, and we're we're going to go to Washington State and future ones. So, but we're going to continue first with this episode fifty four, the case of Matrasova, featuring Ty Gagne, the author of Where You'll Find Me. Thanks for listening. I remember my sergeant keep coming in and asking about Ty Gagne, asking this, asking that. He wants to meet with us and talk about Kate Matrasova. And I was like, who is this guy anyways? And Mark and you had a relationship. You guys were friends. And, you know, and he went, he's like, oh, he's, he, he does risk management. And so that kind of framed our first meeting was talking about the, the Kate Matrasova case that we're going to talk a lot about. But the risk, the management, and the lessons learned for those that are going to listen to this and read your book, because that's so important when we have travesty that we take the good, at least that's what I've found, mm-hmm. to take the good out of it, take the learning process out of it, and pass it on, because that's Kate's legacy. Yeah. yeah I, I, I remember meeting you for the first time vividly. <laughs> I, think we, I think we were having lunch uh, in Lancaster, yes. Mark and I, and... I knew who you were, but we had never met. And, I, you know, I was in law enforcement, as you know, long ago. And I can remember sitting across the table from you. And I'm like, yeah, this guy isn't, he, he's, I'm still getting measured up here. So, You're still getting measured up yeah. for, for, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, years ago. But, yeah, those first meetings are are critical. And yeah. The, yeah, the frame, the framework, I think all law enforcement officers know that. You can't judge a book by its cover, but that's the place to start. Mm-hmm. And and we start peeling back the the onion, so to speak, to see, you know, what kind of people are made of. It's just it's in our DNA. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, some don't take the time to peel back the layers and right. um Yeah. And I and I have learned that through my career that yeah, you can't judge a book by its cover. It's a good place to start, but you need to peel back those layers to find out who people are because there are some really awesome people that sometimes we don't give the time of day because of the way they look, the way they talk. And it's just, it's been a learning experience. So, but yeah, and we all measure each other up and that's why it's so important when law enforcement have those civilian friends that can actually yeah, ground right. balance. You. Absolutely. And so, congrats on the, on the podcast. Yeah. This it's, is great. it's been fun. It's yeah. It's keeping me engaged in what I love to do. Yeah. Because I don't know what I do otherwise. I've, you know, after retirement, it felt like I jumped off a cliff and I was just waiting to land. And I'm like, I better pull a parachute here quick. Well, you landed. <laughs> you landed well. And, and and it's really unique to go back to, to cases, to rescues that I've been involved with directly. And this one is really, you know, close to my heart because it was a tragedy. It was over the top. It was on the edge her husband, Charlie, you know, I worked with him to much of a degree as a, a search and rescue manager works with a husband of a tragic event. So it, it's it's part of me. But again, I want it, it, you bring it into paper so people can read. And, and it's so important for people to understand so they don't do make the same mistakes and they, they learn from it. So that that's Kate's legacy. I mean, she was quite a dynamic woman. I found out after the fact and uh, when my phone wouldn't stop ringing, every time I set it down after the search mission, it, it rang again. And finally, I had to Google Kate Matrasova and to see what an accomplished woman she was. And then 
your idea of risk management. And, uh, you know, Ty also does uh, talks about this incident and talks about his books. And I have done, I've listened to five different times that Ty's gone to these events and spoken to groups. And each time I find it engaging, I find it interesting for the fifth time. It just blows my mind that you could do that five different times, five different ways and engage somebody that actually was there and lived it to the point where I'm, I'm interested and it goes quickly. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, my approach with this has always been, and to use your words, it, 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 it was a tragedy. And I think, you know, we tend to, we're quick to judge people, especially when something goes wrong. And I always approach this from the perspective of when we judge, we stop learning. And, and let's take a different approach to this. What can we take away from a tragic situation uh, that might help us better manage risk or, or, or better understand our, our own decision-making process on a day-to-day basis? Because, you know, the things that um, tend to go wrong in the mountains are the same things on a day-to-day basis that, that can go wrong for us at sea level. Um, and again, try to try to create a resource for people. Yeah, and while it, also telling the story of a, a really remarkable person and exceptional human beings that go out into the backcountry to rescue them. Right, and then they apply it to their lives, their work. So, because you, you're a risk manager, manager. Yeah, that's what that's what you do for work. Yeah, who also takes a few from from time to time that, because I do think there's value in doing that. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, but you also are an outdoors person. You hike, you do winter hikes, you know, so that was interesting to you, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, I had my own uh, mishap or near mishap in the mountains in 2008, which I'm very transparent about, and it's the prologue of the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd gone on to Franconia Ridge on a February weekend and with two people I had never hiked with before, but I was really drawn, I really wanted to do the ridge line. You know, and I talk about those things that influence us to do some of the things that we do. You know, I was going kind of on ego, and um, it wasn't the day to be out there. It, this, they weren't the people to be with. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't with my normal hiking and climbing partner. And, you know, I, I made a series of decisions, as we all do, that um, ended up, it could have been a very high consequence, but luckily I got through really high winds and really poor visibility on the ridge. And, you know, I, I reflected a lot on that. And I think that has helped shape how I approach these things because it can happen to anybody. It, it doesn't have to be at four or 5,000 feet. Again, can be driving your car or, you know, at work, it just doesn't really matter. Yep. And I, I get it because I'm a goal orientated person as mm-hmm. well. I remember a similar thing, hiking Mount Jefferson. It was like May. And again, I just threw a few things in the backpack and I always threw my, you know, first aid stuff and things that I normally carry along with the radio back then mm-hmm. just to hike Mount Jefferson. And I got up there and the clouds came in and it got cold and I'm like, I didn't bring enough. And I'm sitting there. I'm going to the top. Yeah. Did you keep going? Oh, yeah, of yeah. course I did. Right. Of course I did. I just, you know, and it, it broke again and it was fine. As you know, the whites, you know, blink and they'll change the weather again. Yeah. But again, I should have just an extra, one extra layer, I would have been fine. But nope, nope, Wayne, you do this all the time. You know what you need, and it's a gorgeous day there. Yeah, it was a gorgeous day, and then those clouds came in. Temperatures dropped like 10 degrees, like 10 degrees in within 20 minutes. Yeah, and I think what the what I tried to do with the book and what I've tried to do with these the presentations is, you know, these are the things that 
this is why Wayne continues to move toward the summit mm-hmm. when all of these seemingly un, you know inconsequential things are happening and they're stacking on top of each other until you sprain your ankle or you get disoriented or lost or you're dehydrated or hypothermic and exactly and you start just, making poor yeah, decisions falls apart mm-hmm. no it's because it, it, you can put yourself in their shoes and you know that day i was going to the top and i knew it and you know it cleared out it was a nice day it was a beautiful day at the top once i got there but i didn't expect that cloud bank to roll in and uh, i can certainly understand when people come up from boston new york and it's in their schedule yeah, I don't know how many rescues I've done that it's in their schedule. Yeah, so that's a decision bias. It's sunk cost effect. And, you know, we we get a, a finite period of time to go accomplish the goal we've set for ourselves. And even though we're getting all of these signs and signals that it might not be the right day or we're running out of time or it's getting late, um, we'll, we'll continue to escalate our commitment toward the summit or the goal, not really paying attention to the fact that we need to be reassessing and Again, we put so much time, energy, and money into this endeavor, and I, I can't come back the next weekend because I've got plans. So I've, mm-hmm. I've got to go. I've got to keep going. And that's right. Then you get your phone rings. Mm-hmm. And that's because we've been there. We we can make that assessment right. and and hopefully learn from that. And unfortunately, Kate made the the same type of assessments just on one of the worst weather days in, in my recollection. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when it's negative 90 with a wind chill, you know, on Mount Adams is just beyond extreme. The second coldest place on earth. Yeah, 90 below zero overnight. Uh, they wind gust 530 in the morning, the Monday, just before the second phase of the search was starting. They got a gust of 141. Mm. I think the only other coldest place on earth was Antarctica at the time. Yes. just uh, That's just incredible to think that happened in northern New Hampshire. Right. And And... To be honest with you, most people just, uh, you know, I don't know how many times they see that sign, you know, Mount Washington, the world's worst weather, and they think it's funny. They take pictures beside it, and they just don't understand. I mean, I've been there. I've seen that. I've seen the winds, uh, you know, sitting in a cruiser when you can't open the doors because the winds are, are so crazy. Being on Mount Washington where you can't see your hand in front of your face and you got to get off this mountain, to get just back because you're done on yeah. top and you're driving two miles an hour trying to get off the road. So I, I get it. And, uh, you know, actually, uh, the, one of the podcasts I've done before that, we talked me and Jim Sears, Jim Sears, game warden in northern New Hampshire, spent some time on the top of Mount Washington. And Mike Pelchek is another guy. I hope I get an opportunity to talk because he knows a lot about Mount Washington and a lot about search and rescue. Yeah, he spent a lot of time up there just search and rescue and as, you know, former park man, uh, park manager, park manager, search and rescue yeah. person for eons. Yeah. Great so guy. I'm, I'm plugging yeah. that next podcast for him. So this yeah. is going to come on before Mike does, or he's going to be part of this one maybe as well. I but hope he is. He's I, got a lot to offer. He, he certainly has a lot to offer. So, but you know, let, let, let's frame this book. I mean, you, sure. you know, I was there, I lived part of it, but you know, it's nice to get somebody that's done all the interviews and put everything to as a package together because mine's one perspective. You have many perspectives looking from the outside in, which I find, you know, it, it's really engaging for even me. Yeah. Where, so where would you like to start? You think? Uh, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. So, well, I think the beginning really is, um, Kate arrived in the United States, right around 20 years old, uh, from uh, Omsk, Siberia. She came over here on a work-study visa. 
um, spent some time working, ended up moving um, to Illinois, attended um, college. He was learning English at the, at the time and graduated with a four-year degree from DePaul, um, you know, scored a really competitive internship on Wall Street. From there, um, earned a graduate degree in financial engineering, worked for the fourth largest investment bank in the world, uh, also located on Wall Street. And over a period of four years prior to her accident in February of 15, you know, she had climbed some pretty significant summits throughout the world. Uh, she climbed Denali, Rainier, Elbrus, Kilimanjaro, Aconcagua. She was planning to do Everest. Um, she was on her way to completing the seven summit challenge. She had already done four. It's the highest summit on each of the seven continents. Um, and each of those times that um, she did that, she was, you know, part of a, she was a client in a, in a guided expedition um, where really the, the guides, the experts are, are assuming the decision-making for the client. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think one of the things that we, uh, we think about is does that experience equate to the experience that's necessary to, to tackle something like the, the White Mountains, which may, you know, seem like such a small um, endeavor compared to the, you know, 20,000, 22,000 foot mountain. Yeah. Nope, I, w- I would agree. And you're right. From my perspective, I would call her experienced mm-hmm. just because she has done all that. Even with a guide, you pick up, you pick right. up the, the skill sets. You're, you're building your skill sets. But those guides know their individual areas. They, they know their routes. They know their weather. They keep an eye on that stuff, and they keep it serious. And we have the same type of guide in, in the White Mountains, especially during the winter areas that they, they take groups up there. Yeah, they're hyper-focused on managing risk. The safety of the client is, is paramount. And so um, in January of 2015, um, Kate and Charlie had come up to the White Mountains to, for her to do reconnaissance on the route because she knew she was going to be coming back in February. Originally did not want to do the hike solo. Uh, that, was not, that wasn't her intention, mm-hmm. but um, she couldn't get anybody to go with her. So she decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. She saw this as progression. She saw this as an opportunity to gain experience, mm-hmm. uh, to build resiliency. She, you know, she liked to suffer. She, she saw growth in suffering in that, you know, putting yourself in a situation and working really hard and, and drawing lessons from that. Um, and so the January trip, when they came up, uh, they had hiked Madison together, stayed overnight. Kate wanted to go do Mount Adams the next morning. You know, Charlie did not, didn't want to continue, thought the sense that the weather was probably going to turn, which as mm-hmm. you said in your earlier comments, that it, it's very quick to do that in the blink of an eye. Um, and so they broke down camp, returned back to New York, knowing she'd come, come back a month later. So over President's Day weekend, she, her intent was to do the Northern Traverse. Uh, it's around 15 miles. It starts at um, Mount Madison Valleyway Trail and culminates just past Mount Washington in Amanusik Ravine. And um, so her intent was to get a very early start that Sunday and to do the Traverse. Um, and But as you said, um, some really, really bad weather arrived um, late morning into the afternoon and and she was out there in it and just was unable to get out of it. Right. And she had a very aggressive itinerary as well. I remember, you know, looking at her time frames and how she framed it and going, that was pretty aggressive, you know, especially for the winter. And she broke trail a lot of the way. So it just, it took so much energy to, to get above tree line to start. Because if anybody has experienced even snowshoeing or 
operating in snow, when you're breaking trail, you, you, you always want somebody in front of you to break in trail. And, and it always kills me because canines understand this. If you yeah. have a dog, all of a sudden it's heavy snow, and you watch that dog. He may do it for a few minutes, but then he's behind you because you're, you're breaking the trail. Yeah. And I'm like, those dogs are so smart. And here I am breaking trail for him, and every now and then he's stepping on my snowshoes, <laughs> and I'm getting, yeah. get off my snowshoes, you know? Yeah. Well, and as you know, uh, from a search and rescue standpoint, fishing game is generally breaking the trail there. You know, they're mm-hmm. the hasty teams that are going up first and creating that trough for for the other teams that are coming uh, coming to support. And that's so important because half the energy is expanded, you know, by doing breaking trail. Yeah. So by her, just that, that initial part, it probably took a whole lot more out of her than she thought. Yeah, it took it, it took a lot of time. Definitely, You can just watch because I have, uh, thanks to Fishing Game, I, I have the the GPS track. Um, mm-hmm. She had a handheld GPS and have been able to use that uh, to just ascertain where Kate was at what particular time. And then you cross-reference that with the weather, hourly weather observations from the observatory. So you can, you, you get a sense of direction of wind, temperature, and where she was. And that's really helped to tell the story because, you know, unfortunately she didn't survive and, and is unable to, you know, to explain what she was doing, why she decided to do what she did. Um, and that's something really good when you do your talks. That's that's something you talk about, where she was, what the weather, how it was changing, you know, and decisions upon upon that point. So I, I, I found that interesting when you talk because you have that timeline that, that frames it out and the weather reports that go consistently, the, the, the winds. You can almost start to feel you as somebody listening to you experiencing that. And I think that's your goal is to have your audience experience what Kate was experiencing. I think as best I can, you know, recognizing until you've been in a 70 plus mile an hour wind, which I think we both mm-hmm. have at, t- at some point, it's it's just a completely different ball game. It's right. exhausting. And then you, you exacerbate it with wind chill and high, you know, whether you're hydrating or or eating, providing that, you know, keeping your glycogen stores where they need to be for the exertion that you're in the output that you're engaged in. It's, and that's very difficult to do in the winter time. You actually have to make yourself eat and drink because that you don't want to get that out and you don't want to, and something inside you says you don't have to. Yeah. And I want it's going to take too much effort to eat and drink. But th- but that's just one of those, it's easier not to t- stop and take your pack off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just one of those inconsequential things, one of those small variables that, again, it, it doesn't seem important to you at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when something goes wrong, it becomes, it's just one more thing that has to be managed in a, in a situation you got to untangle yourself from. Yeah, and your body's using all those stores, breaking trail getting above tree line and when you break of tree line there's got there's that i'm here yeah it's awesome it is awesome it is it's just it's something especially on a sunny day it's just there's nothing like it being on that ridge line in a sunny day and experiencing that yeah well said yeah it's so she she breaks tree line and she's, she's achievement yeah so we, we we've got it we're here so but now i might have in my itinerary and at, at that point when she breaks tree line you know, it's not get the weather's getting bad, but not real bad, and it's at her back to the wind. Yeah, I, so I when when she got out of the car at the trailhead, um, you know, there was no wind. It was zero degrees, and and some of the listeners might be like, "Well, it's still cold," but not you know, not if you're a winter hiker with some experience and you got the proper gear. Mm-hmm. Um, 
she actually felt it was warmer than what she expected it to be. And so, you know, you talk about when you have an expectation that something's going to be a certain way and it's actually more favorable than what you expect, that that contributes to, um, that adds complexity to decision-making that you're you're going to have to engage in later on. And so when she broke tree line at around 8.50 in the morning, the wind was at her back. Um, it was, you know, it was cold, but um, again, she had she had the gear for that type of weather at the time. And the weather didn't really start to shift, um, I'd say, until around 10, you know, 10.30 in the morning. Um, it stayed pretty stable from 8.50 to around 10.30. But it really at a right around 10.30 in the morning is when that critical decision came as to whether she's standing down in front of Madison Hut. Um, and, you know, that's the link up back to the Valley Way Trail or to continue Star Lake, which was her intended itinerary. And that's, you know, the moment of decision. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. You call it a day because, you know, the winds at that point were starting to gust up to, you know, between 60 and 70 miles an hour. Um, or do you continue going? And, and, and she chose to continue going. We will never know why. Um, but, but again, the approach I wanted to take was why, what are some of the things that cause us to continue? Mm-hmm. Just what kept, what kept Wayne going up Jefferson? What are those decision biases that, that keep people out there? Right. And it's in our DNA is, is, is my explanation. You know, we're, those types of people are goal achievers and we set our goals and it's very difficult for us to slack off yeah. from that until yeah. we hit that. You know, whether you're a runner, whether you're, no matter what you're competing in or what everything, that's your goal is to win that, to achieve that, to, to, to get that title, to get that, you know, so that's, that's in a lot of people's DNA. And I, I covered a lot of rescues because of that DNA throughout yeah. my career. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think drive and determination kept Kate above tree line and the longer she was above tree line, um, now it's not driving determination. It's now it's she's exposed to the weather. She's exposed mm. to the terrain, and once hypothermia starts, you know the colder you get, um, that that affects your decision making ability, your front prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. where you know that CEO function of your brain, executive function of your brain. You know, lack of blood flow to that part of the brain causes us to start to really it hampers, impedes our decision making. No, absolutely. And, it, and so what kept you out there in the first place <laughs> is not necessarily what's keeping you out there. It, there's, there be, there's a shift that takes place. It's not the drive and the determination. Now it's, it's, it's impaired decision-making because of hypothermia, because of exhaustion, because of dehydration. Right. And you're, you're building up a sweat as you're going, yep. and it's cooling you down because you're sweating, and as the slower you go, the more that temperature is affecting you and the decisions makings are becoming poor. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I absolutely. Until, yeah, there's, you know, you can talk to people all about it, but until they understand, you know, really what it is. And I, I don't know how many rescues. One of the first rescues I was on was Halpern. And that was in the, the Central Whites, uh, Crawford Notch area. And he, he got a, clearly got hypothermia because he shedded his, shed his clothes 
going and was found in a brook sitting in the middle of the winter time. But he found a drainage, went down the drainage, and clearly was getting hypothermia because he was shedding his clothes. Yeah, paradoxical and, undressing. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then sat himself in the brook, and that's where we found him. Yeah. So it's, and you can see. And that's that. not a rational, that's not a rational mind. Right. You know, that's a hypothermic mm-hmm. brain. Right. And um, that's really hypothermic yeah. brain. And then certainly Kate didn't experience to that degree. I think she was uh, able to fight, you know, yeah, a lot of that. That's really, rem- yeah. So she makes the decision to continue to Adams. You know, we'll never know if um, her intent was to continue with the entire traverse. Um, you know, Charlie really believes that her intent was only to go to Adams because she didn't do Adams the month before in mm-hmm. January when she wanted to. And, you know, just really emphasize that she was a rational person. She, she did think about risks. She, she had a plan. Um, she had multiple bailout points set across the route. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you turn your back to that wind. Um, and at some point she makes the determination that she needs to turn around and go back, which was the right call. But that call came really late. Mm-hmm. And so to use your, your words, because I, I, distinctly remember this quote that you gave to the to the Boston Globe and Nestor Ramos wrote really a really good article the young woman in the mountain um, and you were quoted saying you know she was systematically trying to save her own life at that point and she worked really hard to get back to Madison Call and and Treeline but got to a point where she was about four tenths of a mile from Madison Hut which would have at least provided mm-hmm. some barrier of, of the wind and then another, so three tenths of a mile to the hut, four tenths of a mile to tree line, but gets to a point where she's, as she's going back into that call, she's now walking back into a 90 plus mile an hour headwind, which is just impossible to, to penetrate and um, activates an emergency beacon, as you know, and that launches what is a very, um, you know, a, a significant SAR operation. No, which, you, which you're going to speak to much better than I can because that's you've lived that for years. So yes, no, that's that, that's for sure. Uh, she gets to that point, and like you know, and, and really she was, you know, could she have made other decisions that might have? Who knows? I mean, that was anybody that has walked into a heavy wind, and she was a slight girl, hundred twenty pounds, hundred thirty, five four, one twenty five, five four, one twenty five. To walk into a 90-mile-an-hour wind, in, in search and rescue, we find people are driven. They put their, basically, they put their back to the wind, and the wind pushes them. So yeah. when, when we do a search and rescue mission, we look at wind direction, speeds of wind, wind direction, because that wind's going to push them, usually, to where we're going to find them. Yeah, right. Kate hunkered down and pushed into a 90-mile-an-hour wind. Yeah, and I think, because it's, you know, you'll have listeners and have had readers and well, should never have been in there at there in the first place. And because I, I do think you saw her character in terms of how far, how close she got to saving herself. Mm -hmm. You know, she was completely relying on her own um, strength to get herself out of the situation. And, you know, as Charlie told, I think Mark, you know, if she's activated that beacon, she knows it's a life and death situation. Um, so, but I think that's the thing that we have to contend with here because, you know, to hear me say that she worked really hard to get back, um, can be overshadowed by the, just the, uh, the criticism of being there in the first place. And, um, right. So it's, it's not, it's not black and white to me. Right. And and there's critics everywhere. Yeah. 
and there'll yeah. be critics about this podcast, and there's always critics, <laughs> yeah. and that isn't probably, my intention. Probably, that, your, probably just your guest. And my intention is yeah. just uh, her, again, her DNA, her heart to, to walk into a wind at 90 miles an hour and continue that for as long as she did. It just states that what kind of person she was, and, you know, I, I, yeah, that was, a, that was a tough thing to do. Yep. The person she was, again, I think drive and determination kept her out there. Uh, probably be- beyond um, her capabilities, just physiologically and um, experience-wise. And I think it, 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 those same traits um, had her almost very close to self-rescuing. Very no, close. I, I, would, I would totally agree. Yeah. And I think Charlie, knowing his wife, certainly knew when that beacon went off, you know, that was, yeah, it was a life or death situation because he knew her, her personality yep. that she'd get her she'd want to get herself out of whatever exactly she, she, she wasn't a kind of person that was going to rely on anybody else to rescue her yeah and that's where the title of the book comes from where you'll find me alan clark the president and founder of pemi valley search and rescue you know i was talking to him at an, at an event i was speaking at and he he said you know based on everything i'd read and everything i knew about her because it Pemi wasn't involved in that particular rescue. It was out of their catchment area. He said, you know, when she activated the beacon, I, I don't, he said, I don't think it was activating it. Please come save me. It, you know, she activated it. She knew it was the end, um, that she wasn't going to survive. And it was, it was, she did it for the rescuers and for her family that, you know, this is where, this is where I'll be. This is where you'll, he said, you know, this is where you'll find me. No, oh, and so. that's absolutely, I think it's a great thing you grasp for a title of a book yeah which i didn't even know i was writing at the time he said it so it was just right. one of those things that happened along the way yeah, yeah. and i think it's a it's, it's it's a good thing because of all the things you glean through it compelled you to write a book about this and i, I think it's a it's a good thing for people to read it it's a good thing for us to comprehend it and it's a good thing just to understand kate and carry on you know her memory so I think, uh, you know, like I said in the beginning, any good you can come out of a bad situation it is, you have to grab onto that. Survivors grab onto good things that come out of bad situations, and that's just being human. And that's what I, I hope everybody grabs out of your book is lessons learned. You know, even for people that are like Kate, for me that, you know, thinks about that weather change and when you're out there, and absolutely, do I pack? heavy yeah because i know the equipment that can save me and i I always have a tendency to bring stuff for other people because that's what i've been doing for my whole career is helping save people and so i carry that a little bit of extra that can if i find somebody that i can can here have this yeah and i think some of the anecdotes that i've gleaned over the past five years um whether it's readers or people at at sessions or or what have you and again i'm not i i am in no way or will i take credit for for these things, but that story, you know, I've had people say I, I'm changing the way I go into the backcountry. I'm, I'm, I am packing more. I mm-hmm. used to go fast and light, and there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with fast and light. Um, again, I think that's a gray area. And then one of the the other things is that you know, people that are going out into the backcountry has it's been shared with me that you know we're having conversations with each other around turnaround and what's driving us and why are we why are we doing this that that we normally haven't ha- had before and i i think those are those are good things to to come out of this and the other part of the book that is as much the story it's the search and rescue operation and there's there's mm. some remarkable stories within that rescue um of rescuer experiences and i i really wanted i really wanted to 
kind of shine a light on the work that gets done by the conservation officers, the Air National Guard pilots, Civil Air Patrol, and and the ground personnel, many of whom are all, you know, they're volunteers volunteers and they're just, they're just remarkable people, you know, and so committed to what they're doing. No, no doubt. I I remember getting that call from Sergeant Mark Ober, who was my sergeant, and I always had this, I didn't really want to know the night before what was going on because you don't sleep. Yep. And Mark called me that night, which he knows I hate getting the call at night because I won't sleep. You know, call me at 5 a.m. to go out. Call me, but he calls me that, that night and says, hey, I just wanted to give you a heads up because I was off on Sunday and this was going to roll into Monday. And, you know, the, we've got a really bad one going on and I don't think it's going to get resolved tonight. So I just wanted to give you a heads up that we're going to have to roll out a lot tomorrow. And I'm like, okay. So again, I didn't sleep that whole night thinking of what tomorrow will bring, getting preparations to get a, a mobile command post from Concord up. I had Mark, you know, lining that up and telling him about what we needed in the next day. And, and he, you know, that's his job to manage that that night and calling out officers and, you know, uh, other search and rescues, MRS, and trying to make a rescue that evening and making the decisions when the wind gusts were over 100 miles an hour and temperatures were negative you know that's the stress of a of a search and rescue manager i don't think a lot of people yeah, understand i totally agree with you yeah I, I and i'm working on a writing project right now that really i think dives into that role even more so mm-hmm. uh, than than i did in the first book um mark did a i mean you know he did a he was Dying. managing a ton from the cab of a pickup truck Absolutely. that's getting, you know, rocked back and forth by wind gusts mm-hmm. uh, in a parking lot. And, you know, knowing, you know, the, the safety of the rescue the rescuers is paramount. Mm-hmm. And to me, this, this story is as much about um, the risk management practices and the decision making of the people that were on the ground and in the air over that period of time and, and how they approach these things and the decisions they make and uh, their cap- recognizing capability, self-awareness, situational awareness. I get into all of that. and um, But yeah, I agree with you. And then Mark, as you know, um, he stayed out all night after, you know, phase one of the search that night concluded. He was out driving and I'll never forget him telling me this and I put it in the book, but you know, he's driving trailhead to trailhead hoping that he's going to pull in and Kate's going to be standing there or that she's bailed off, you know, into Madison Gulf and comes out onto the road. And, you know, those are the things, those are the stories that, that people don't hear about. They read the headline, they make their judgment. Um, you know, most of us, I think, feel empathy and then move on to the next story or the next task. And you don't hear about the what the rescuers go through, what the families go through, what the victim went through. And I think those are important parts. And who the victim was, I think those are important parts of the yeah, I think that's Story. why your book is so important. Podcasts like this are so important because we, we, we take the time to delve into the, that type of stuff. And you're right, Mark Ober did an, an awesome job managing that. And until the next morning when I met him at 6 a.m. and we're trying to find a location for to bring that mobile command center in and the parking lot was just a total whiteout. Yeah. And I don't even know what the wind speeds were, but I'm like, we need to find some place in the Lee. We yeah. can't run it out of this parking lot, Mark. So we went to the Randolph uh, Fire Station, which was in the Lee. You know, when we had our mobile command station there, plus we had the fire department to work out and they're just, you know, awesome people. That's not the first time we've run a search and rescue mission out of there. And it just works well to work with the local fire department on that. Yeah, I think it was so cold 
you know, Matt Holmes and Glenn Lucas and Bob Mancini had to, they geared up in the fire department building just because it was so, it was just too And that was that night, that night before with before Mark. They, they, they were the initial the hasty, team, yeah. the hasty team as far as game wardens went. Yep. And then we had an MRS crew. Was it FSAR or MRS? MRS, it was four. Four, four MRS four people MRS. came in. And then I, the four more came in to, um, they ended up bringing the, the litter crew. up. They came up, the second crew, and left a litter up there and, um, you know, went, turned around because the MRS one had, had turned around as well. Right, because the, their the intent beacon. that night yeah. was not to go above tree line. The the the, the way the the spots, and I hate to use that word spots because that's a brand name. It's yep. uh, we don't want to use a brand name because these. Yeah, this was not a pe- spot. Yeah, it's the a, personal locator, uh, personal locator beacon devices. There's this several of them. Some go to the Air Force Base, which this one did, and they manage those beacons. And then Spots has its own company that does that. So, but this yeah, was a personal yeah. locator, and I learned so much over this case over personal locator beacons. Yeah, because they I have to we be. A lot about it. Yeah, it has to be deployed perfectly to give an exact location. This this one gave us I, I forget how many it was. I think we were getting into over twelve. Yeah, so there there were you were um, fishing game received eleven uh, between three fifteen in the afternoon and five twenty Monday morning. But it got to the point where Lieutenant Jim Goss, who's now retired, mm-hmm. he was also there. He told the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center, stop giving us coordinates until you can give us the right something. Because yeah. it, what happens is in those situations, you have so much information coming in. You're, it you know, it impedes your ability to, to make decisions. And they were getting so many conflicting beacons. It was, like, ob- it was obvious at this point, okay, not, many of these aren't real as mm-hmm. they as they were able to determine Sunday night when MRS-1 got to the location of the second beacon, which was probably the safest location to go to, right. although incredibly difficult to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, Civil Air Patrol that's connected to the Air Force, had they had over 30 that the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center had provided to them. So it was just... 30 different beacon, beacon hits, hits. And it was just crazy. And But I, I think since then, you know, at the time... There were high Earth orbit satellites. There were low Earth orbit satellites. We were we didn't have the medium Earth orbit, and and eventually Lieutenant Goss talked to somebody that was yeah. very familiar, and he said, "Give me one." He's yeah. like the first one, and that's where they went, and that was the right one. Mm-hmm. But I think satellite technology has gotten better in terms of the medium Earth or Earth orbit satellite stays on above the horizon longer, um, which should lessen the you know, the, these episodes of just having this, it's the wild goose chase, right. Uh, chasing hits, because as you know, every one of them has to be cleared. Correct. And for us, it gave us something to do. Some of the ones below tree line yeah. were accessible because that we weren't going above tree line in the wind and the weather. So those were assignments we were, we could give. And, and we were hopeful that she had bailed off to these locations. So she was below tree line, maybe built a snow cave and, you know, was, was okay. So that those were our hopeful ones, and when we send you know you know teams to that because it was doable. Yeah. And then you know we geared up that next day, but let's let's go back to that first night because uh yeah you know you you did interviews from the officers yeah you know um, and I wasn't I'm there uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh, you know that that first night you know it's dark uh, we're talking you know over 100 mile an hour winds it's negative 90 the decision was made by Mark you know with, in conjunction with everybody not to go above tree line to try to clear these 
you know, the personal Peter beacons below tree line because that was the safety. But being that safe is we have to rely on our officers or the rescuers mm-hmm. on scene that live that. And again, we're fighting cold. We're probably fighting hypothermia. And we're, we're, we're fighting determined type A people just like Kate. Yeah. Well, I, I laughed just a short time ago because I, one thing I distinctly remember because I remember interviewing um, Eric Fluett and Matt and Bob Mancini and Mark uh, and Glenn Lucas. It was kind of like a one day where they were each assigned a time to meet with me. And I was at, I think it was at the Lancaster office. Yep. Yep. And I remember sitting down with, with Glenn and in the fishing game report, there's just one sentence that says, you know, um, conservation officer Lucas wasn't feeling well and, and turned around and, and came back down the mountain and it gave his time. And I might've wrote that. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I said, you know, Glenn, what, can you talk to me a little bit more about this? Did you, did you have the flu or are you dehydrated? And he goes on to tell the story of how, um, he's driving with this team. You know, when I say driving, I mean, they're hustling. three of them are, they're hustling to get up there and it's really, really cold. And he talked about how he had, um, I think from a layering perspective, he he didn't wear quite enough because he normally doesn't because you end up heating up quickly. Right, as you, know. you start sweating and and the cold got to him quickly and he got tired and he started to fall behind and and he he called the two back and which I think is this is a re- pretty remarkable thing that he did and it's a lesson that I've tried to extend his story onto others when I'm talking because of we're talking teams here mm-hmm. and. He tells them, I'm, I, it's not my night. I can't do this. I'm going to create a second accident scene, and you guys need to keep going. And I think about that. I mean, mm-hmm. no, especially that's... in law enforcement, in public safety, there's a there's a cohesiveness and there's a kind of an unwritten aura out there that you, you perform, you show up, and you do the job. And, and you never give up. And you don't give up. And he... And you always win. That was such an important lesson. Um, and when I, I, you know, my oh. jaw kind of dropped, I said, Glenn, do you realize the the value and importance of this story. He's like, he's like, no, I, you know, I, I don't. And we talked more about it and he's since, I think given a talk or two about mm-hmm. his own experience to making good decisions yeah, to teenagers. And which I think is a great audience for that. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, I think whether it's an organization uh, or a team or a family, it's, it's having that level of trust that the three of them had to not judge the decision that he made and for him to feel that he could be vulnerable in front of them and, and say tonight's not my night. Right. And as search uh, managers too, yeah. because we have an expectation that our teams are the best and they do this and we give them an assignment that it's going to get done. Yeah. We need to accept it. We need to take the information that they have in the field and accept it. Right. And the tr- I think the trust that exists between incident command and and rescuers out miles away from them and making decisions in real time, it's again, I I just think there are great lessons there that translate into everyday life, just in terms of the, how that trust is developed, how that expertise is developed. And That's because most of us have been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and but it's been a progression. Right. You know, I think about, I, I'd ask you, if you reflected on who you were on your first rescue call to who you were when you retired, what huh. what changed? Lots of lessons learned. Yeah, what, 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 what would you say changed for you over that period of time? Yeah, just knowledge gleaned. Mm-hmm. And when you say that, I keep thinking of that the, even towards the end of my career, I could have learned a, a few more lessons because I, you still have that in your system, that accomplishment that 
you know, I worked with Border Patrol on a, on, a, on a mission. It was negative 13. We got the snowmobile stuck several times. I created a ton of sweat. We're changing batteries out on the cameras on the border. And, you know, and everybody kept saying their hands were cold, their feet were cold. My chest was cold. Yeah. And I kept saying my chest is cold, but I'm staying there. And finally, the guy, the supervisor says, uh, we're leaving, me and you are going. And I said, why? He goes, because nobody says their chest is cold. He goes, I don't like that. So when we got back, I had frost on the inside of my jacket yeah. built up. Frost. That's a good supervisor. It's a very good supervisor. He made the right decision. And I even I tried to argue with him whether I was borderline hypothermia or not. But he's like, no, Wayne, we're, we're leaving. It's like, I've never seen that. That's the second time you've said that. So we don't, we're, we're, we're going to go. And he made an excellent decision. But that, that was later in my career. Yeah. And I just, uh, you, you know, you say you glean all these things, I've seen all these things. But when you put yourself in those positions, yeah, you may have a little extra equipment. You may, you know, you should know when to turn back. But it's still, it's, it's, it's part of you that you, you fight yourself with those things. But I've Well, especially as a first responder. I mean, there's a, I'm not going to say there's an expectation because I think when you say that, you're, you actually you create risk because you oh you, you must go you must mm-hmm. finish you must win and right and I think the first responder and public safety community in general has done a really good job of of recognizing it those kinds of things have gotten have created um, challenges have gotten people hurt or right. worse and um, they just again do a really I think a really good job and really difficult circumstances of yes moving with urgency but it's it's a methodical urgency you know right. it's well and I think. Those are the things I've learned is, you know, to, when to cut off, not to create another search and rescue, not to, 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 to put that limit there where you know that you can successfully do it. It may take more time. You may have to wait for a weather change. You may have to, you know, ice, you know, don't send an officer out on thin ice when somebody went through. Yeah. That's what we have an airboat. So where we have, we have a team, you know, to know that that person is probably perished and, you know, to try to deal with the, the the family, the friends, when they want to, nothing more than you to go out there and find their loved one. When you know that, no, we have to put the brakes on and we got to do this right because they are gone. Yeah. That's 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 the the breaking point, and that's the where I see even in my own life that you know the the extra casualties. You know, don't you know frame it up and make sure you, you respond to this correctly so there are no more casualties. Right. So I, I think it, going back to the Sunday night. Um, Bob and Matt continue up the mountain, you know, up the Valleyway Trail. They set up kind of stage at, they're about a thousand yards um, across from the, the site of the second beacon, which they decide that's where the teams are going to go. And just, you know, the, the fuel in their packs froze. They had trouble getting a fire started because it was so windy. They're running up and down the trail and doing... You have ju- a jet boil that yeah, won't work. Right. I mean, and doing jumping jacks just to stay warm, waiting waiting for that team of four from MRS. Yeah, this to, this to is extreme. This, on search yeah. and rescue, even in winter, this doesn't happen. Yeah, Guys don't grab their jet boil and it doesn't work. Yeah. They, they don't have to do jumping jacks to stay warm. You know, this is extreme. It was. It was. It, yeah, and I, I would leave it to them to, to talk about whether, you know, where, in ter- how close to that edge they were. But, mm-hmm. you know, never been colder on a mission before. Um, it's... Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear. 
which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, I, th- I, I think their voices, as you get ready to talk to them, will, will right. add a lot that I can't. No, and we, we can talk about it, but we weren't there. We didn't experience it. Right. Um, no, I, I've been in, I can't even say I've been in similar situations because I've never been in a ne- negative 90, and I'm sure below tree line it wasn't, but it was probably negative 60. Yeah, it was, it was cold. It yeah. was really cold. And that next morning, as you're getting the incident command post set up, you know, I think winds were still between 80 and 100 on Mount Washington and did start to ebb a little bit. And it I was think, crazy. You know, you know, the ABSAR team that ended up locating Kate, again, just the way they went about making decisions and, you know, huddling at tree line, which a lot of the teams do and mm-hmm. gearing up, but also, you know, I remember Mike, and again, I, I want him to tell the story, but, you know, looking at his team and nine others and saying, you know, if anyone's uncomfortable with what we're about to do, there's no judgment here. And they were with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they made just the way they made decisions about how far beyond tree line they would go and pairing up to monitor one another for frostbite and hypothermia, I think is right. those are good lessons for whether you're a hiker Cause, or Because those not. things can change from, from tree line to, you know, a quarter mile in to half mile in. You, you can change, Yeah, you know. and Well, and they tried to get into the Madison Hut um, because they wanted to make that a forward kind of a forward operating area until the wind dropped and got there and the the, dock, the locks were frozen solid. They couldn't get inside. So they went to the lee side of the building and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And, and they executed the plan. And, you know, I, I think unfortunately uh, they found her. She hadn't survived. But I also think fortunately they did they did find her because that was an important part of closure for them and for, for Kate's family. And mm-hmm. again, the things that people don't don't really read about or think about when they read about a missing hiker or, or a hiking accident. No, because it's it spans just beyond the the recovery of the person. Right. So yeah, there were some rescuers that were really affected by that. One that read the book that was um, as part of that team of ten that said the book brought him some some closure because he wasn't quite sure what it. He just got the call and went and executed the mission. didn't didn't know a lot about why why it happened or what what had happened the night before and. Um, yeah, and generally we just give a, a, a general briefing. It's not very detailed. And then, you know, reading a book, and I think it makes it more personable. And I think that's, you know, as a search manager, one of my, you know, I don't know if it was good or bad, but I worked with the families quite a bit in searches. You know, I had critical incident training, so that was usually me dealing with them. And you become bonded with these people. You become, you know, not so much with Charlie. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of it. You know, he was... Yeah, he was, he's a strong, strong individual. Yeah, but I still think about, and I wrote about this a little bit. You and Chad Miller mm. went to deliver the news, and I didn't, I didn't go too deep into that because it's a very personal, private moment. But I, I think probably wrote at a level that would just give people an understanding of the tragedy mm-hmm. that this was a loss, that you know, a loved one was lost, and um, you know, my heart breaks for him, and just the difficulty of you and and Chad going to deliver that message and I remember talking to you about that and and just you know Chad was really forthcoming about the drive over there and um yeah so I think about that a lot no no certainly Chad uh you know that that portion in your book I read and as you know he is uh very detailed and you know I, I boy when you uh deliver news like that it feels like your senses are heightened and you know seeing the stuff from valentine's day you know certainly mm-hmm. had an effect on chad it had an effect on me you know your your heart wrenches yeah normally and it just had that extra wrench to that yeah i just i've delivered 
more than I've ever wanted to for notifications. And um, I've never heard it described as your senses are heightened. And it's, again, I really well said. Mm. I never thought of it that way, but yeah. Yeah, yeah you're, you're trying to feel the person out too to, you know, their normal reaction. But, you know, that's beyond that too. It's it's their care as well that you got to be concerned with. You know, Charlie being all alone, he had relatives in route. Yeah. Things like that, you know, it's, that's as a critical incident you know, debriefer and stuff. That's, you know, I think of, you know, the, the person, there's, there's a victim there as well. Yeah. And I do think from a critical incident debriefing standpoint, I do think about the, you know, the mental health of particularly the, the volunteers. I, you know, there, I think there's a structure in place for, you know, full-time folks mm-hmm. um, from a debriefing standpoint. But I, I do think that's as first responder mental health um, becomes more and more of an issue, um, I think I think the volunteer searchers can't get lost in that. No. I think that's one thing I've talked to a couple of people about just through this five years um, that we can't forget them. No, I, w- I would agree, and I, I, I hope we try to include those. I know I've done some yeah. debriefings yep. with volunteers offered yep, up services, which is services I think important, and, and um, because they're not, you know, they're not doing what you and I used to de- do on a day to day basis. You go to these. You, I'm not going to say you, you grow calluses, but the more you go to, the more you. It grows calluses. You get, yeah, you, I think you, I think get used to it's the wrong word, but yeah. you know, these are volunteers. They might be teaching school or running a small business mm-hmm. or uh, might be a guide and they're just not, they're not used to or acclimated to encountering, you know, a traumatic injury or a death in the backcountry. And because the backcountry for them is they're all hikers and climbers and, you know, that's their place. That's the mm-hmm. place they're passionate about. And when it's disrupted by something awful, um, that space changes for for a lot of them. That's so important for a critical incident debriefer to not get callous, to step back, yep. to you know feel the emotions of those families and feel for them. Because, yeah, and I think that's what I. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, it, it attaches you, and I think that's important to become attached because you, you yeah, that, that you you break that callous, so to speak, that yeah. by becoming in, involved and over that with search and rescue missions, sometimes they're days. And, you know, I always like the family should be the first to be updated. And with social media, that's a challenge. I will tell you mm-hmm. the, this, the search and rescue for the next, from now on, it was a challenge when I left to, to beat the social media to even death notifications, but, and then to, to, to work with them throughout that. Cause you want to give them up to date information as much as you can, as fast as you can. And then you become a part of, you know, you're the liaison, you're their, you're their rock. And that's, that becomes it becomes difficult, but if you don't become that, you lose sensitivity. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's, I think with this, um, again, we're, people are always going to judge and I understand the judgment. Um, it's part of and, being and, human. Right. And I think one of the things I've tried to, it's just the importance of empathy. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you can't tell me the person that's coming from a place of criticism. If, if I ask you as the, as the, the critical voice, so you're telling me in your entire life you have never done something um, that got away from you. You know, you, you've never <laughs> made a series of decisions that led to a consequence that you didn't anticipate. Um, I, I, I'm hard-pressed to believe there isn't something there or a series of somethings there. Um, but again, like you said, it's human nature. It's what we do. Yeah, but you're right. Uh, that brings it personally to everybody. Yeah. 
you know, maybe you didn't pay the price that Kate did. And it may not be extreme mountaineering it, 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 or mountaineering in extreme weather. Vehicle-related, always something. something, you know, yep. snowmobiles. Uh, yeah. You know, just my experience with ATVs and snowmobiles. Even, you know, I, I had a ATV on a, on a search and rescue mission that I hit a rock and I rolled directly over onto my back and it came back on all four wheels. Yeah. And, you know, that was, I, I guess I shouldn't have done that. But that could have had devastating, but did it? You know what I'm saying? But that yeah, yeah that was a, a poor decision that had quite a reaction. That you know, thank goodness I didn't get hurt. But yeah, well, and I think backcountry accidents and mishaps are magnified. Mm-hmm. I mean, in an urban environment, you you know, you drive a car, you make a mistake, you have an accident. Well, you have a seatbelt, you have an airbag. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, those things you have nine one one. Yeah, hopefully those things <laughs> mitigate consequence. You, mm-hmm. you know, you get in trouble in the backcountry. Um, unless you know exactly what you're doing and you're hydrated and you're not hypothermic and you know how to use your gear, right? that you've used it before things went bad. You didn't just buy it and put it in, in your pack because I may need it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, it's not, you don't have that seatbelt. You don't have that airbag. So the consequence is magnified. It's exacerbated. Um, and when you call for help, it's going to be a long way. It's hours. Out. Yeah, as you know. Might have a helicopter involved, which, you know, is expensive. Yeah. so than an ambulance and yeah so the, yeah you're absolutely right it gets magnified and no that's that's for sure so um but but ra- wrapping this all up i mean reflections you've run a book you've been a speaker and you're still you're still available to to speak on this aren't you yeah i'm I, you know just to go way back when the really the origin of all of this was i was putting together a short presentation for our annual risk management conference that was in May of 2015, it was at the Mount Washington Hotel, and it's it's our membership. So it's school, municipal, and county government from all over the state because we, we, we're risk pool, so we provide workers' comp and property and liability coverage to them. And we have a really heavy education and training component, heavy risk management component. We manage their claims. So I was taking something I was passionate about, which is mountaineering and you know I've followed accidents like you and many others in the White Mountains for years and I picked two cases one out of you know my favorite book Not Without Peril Um, and I was all set to go for this May conference and then Kate's accident happens in February and just as you said the reaction to that story I decided that I was going to add it to the presentation and I wanted to look at these three cases in a really non-judgmental way and say what lessons can we glean from these that might help us better make decisions or manage risk in the public sector. Because again, the things that the process at 4,000 feet is the same here. The influences and the human factors at 4,000 feet are the same at sea level. And I thought I was only doing this one time. And so I did the presentation. I got asked to do it again, decided I was only going to focus on Kate's story because it was so compelling for people went back and just did more research over the summer, did it in September of 2015, had the GPS file by then. So it was much more visual and I could add much more detail. And I just kept getting asked to do it over and over and over again. And it, um, you know, I did it last week. I'm doing it next week. It's just a lot of what I'm doing is in, in our membership, but Mm -hmm. it's also, I'm asked to do it outside the membership for hiking groups or you know, business people or what have you. And I never expected that to happen. And all along the way, people, you know, at the conclusion of your presentation, they want to come up and share their own story of a near miss Mm. in the mountains or somewhere else. And then it's followed by, is there a book? I want to know more about Kate. Uh, And the rescuers, is there a book? Is somebody writing it? Are you writing it? 
and you know, for over a year it was no, no, and no. And then finally, um, you know, I think you were there, Colonel Jordan. I did a, I did the presentation for the command staff of fishing game, and Colonel Jordan handed me the entire case file, mm. which opened up a whole absolutely series of information I didn't have before. And there were all these. I met the Black Hawk pilot at a session I was doing. Didn't know he was there and talked to him. And there were just these series of of things that happened that, and, you know, I retraced the Kate's route with Mike Pelchat, who led the team that located her. And so to make a long, I've already made a long story long, but, um, you know, I finally just decided to commit to writing it. And I didn't want to write a sensationalized story. I wanted to write something that would hopefully be a resource for people, you know, recognize who Kate was as a person, recognize the the commitment and the selflessness of the search and rescue community and, and to have people take lessons away in situational awareness and decision bias and, and those kinds of things. And I think you've done that. I think you've, you've been able to, and I think spins a bad word, but uh, bring it to reality for all kinds of decisions made and make it hackable to somebody that sits at a desk every day to, to risk and decision-making and, and bring it to that because it's part of our life. It It is. It, it is. And I think people don't even realize how much of no, a part of your don't. life it is. It's because mm-hmm. complacency sets in and well, I'm not bungee jumping, I'm not <laughs> hiking, I'm not skydiving, therefore I'm not a risk taker and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't buy it. No, um, I would agree. Um, and, you know, maybe there's, for those of us that are, you know, driv- driven and determined, like like you've said, you know, there are lessons to be learned from this, but I think there's also a, a lesson on the other side for the people that aren't and are more risk averse and more conservative that, you know, maybe, you know, it's okay to get out of your comfort zone and mm-hmm. and embrace some discomfort and take some risks because that's where we grow. That's where we, we develop experience and wisdom and, and expertise and specialize in things and build technical competency. So I think you can make the argument regardless of your behavioral style. Right. Um, so, and I'm really grateful to you and to Mark and, you know, the, the CEOs and, and the search and rescue community that have trusted me to tell that story. And, um, you know, you could have shut, you could have shut this down when Mark <laughs> approached you. So I really, I really appreciate it. Well, I'm certainly glad I didn't because, you know, looking from the outside in and gleaning all that information the way you did and then doing a presentation on it, you know, it, it just, it helps everybody involved and it helps those people that aren't involved with, with lessons learned. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, Ty Gagne, where you will find me, you know, a, a tragic story. But again, take take the good out. Take take out of a tragedy. Find the good things in it. Find the lessons learned and then apply it to your life. And yeah. that's the, the most important thing we can do to move on and to remember Kate, I think. Yeah, and, you're, you know, again, you're not going to, if you're picking up this book thinking you're going to read cri- a critical assessment in terms of criticism that's not what this is about that's not the intent it's you take the story even though it's extreme take the story and relate it to you that's you know i want you to decide when the time to turn around was and and how this relates to you and are you driven and determined like you've assessed yourself and or am i not and what again what can i take away from it no absolutely and And thank you very much i wish you all the best with this it's yeah this is this is good this is it's like another format another facet of um you know your writing that's not my skill set yeah. uh fishing game i think developed me to be a talker 
<laughs> well, you're really you're you're really good at it, and I don't mean that. I mean that as a compliment, and I've really enjoyed listening to these, and I I think it's great what you're doing. Well, hopefully, we can continue your work and and share this, and people can learn lessons learned. And you know, if if you can get Ty to talk at a training or something, that's the risk assessment or or learning about this. You know, certainly reach out to him and uh, reach out to me. I can put you in contact with him because. Uh, He's a dynamic speaker as well as a good author. And like I said, five times I've listened to the presentation. I've learned something different because we have our blinders on when we are doing what we're doing in these search and rescues. We have our, our jobs. We do those. And we, you know, we don't experience things everybody experiences. But when you bring this all in, you do all these interviews, you wrap it all up and you package it. You give just a good evaluation and a good perspective, which I enjoy listening to you and the book was outstanding, but I, I enjoy listening to you more because I, I like to, to hear things more. And uh, just like I said, five different times I've seen you five different times. I feel like I saw a different presentation and I gleaned more from it. So. Thanks. And, and that I'm really humbled by that type of feedback just because I have talked to search and rescue rescue teams before as part of this. And, you know, to get that kind of feedback from the people who are, who are out there doing it and experience these things is means a lot to me and that's why i just really focus on detail and research because i want i want to get it right mm-hmm. um because i think it's important to get it right and um i think you did tie in uh you're, you're working on something else now huh yeah i um have a, it's another story out of the white mountains and um and i think with this particular story and and the second coming back to something around the second time I'm getting more access from the teams and um, that I didn't, I got, you, you I'm built really, a relationship. Well, yeah, I'm really happy for the access. I, I got know who last you are time, now. But people I think <laughs> aren't like, all right, this maybe, okay, this guy's reasonable. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I'm really appreciate that. So I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to the story being told and um, it's a story of tragedy, but, but also of survival. And, and I think that's, and I think it needs to be told because again, it's remarkable. And it sounds like we'll be doing another podcast on that. Yeah, it should be out in the fall of this year. So wow. thank you. Good. Well, great, Ty. Thanks All a lot right. for taking the time. And uh, hopefully get the other officers to join in and uh, make a great podcast out of this. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll lay down the challenge right now for the, for them to, to participate. So. Uh, I appreciate that, it. I'll that, let them not know. Not that that carries any weight whatsoever. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. 
Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.